Section 13 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eelin. Part 3, Chapter 2. To rid the Great Glen of both its obnoxious English forts was an enterprise which highly commended itself to those clans whom they chiefly incommoded, the Camerons and the Glengarry and Keppoch Macdonalds. There had been jubilation among these when, on the 5th of March, Fort Augustus had surrendered after two days' siege, and what artillery the besiegers possessed was free to be turned against Fort William. But Fort William, between Inverlochy Castle and the little town of Maryborough, was not so accommodating as its fellow. For one thing, it was in a better position to defend itself, since sloops of war could come up Loch Linne to revictual it, even though the Highlanders held the Narrows at Coran. It had a garrison of five hundred men, both regulars and Argyle militia, plenty of guns, and, after the middle of March, that zealous officer Captain Carolina Scott to assist Major General Campbell in the defense. Already, by the time that Ewan arrived with Lochiel and the reinforcements, there had been some severe skirmishes, and the Highlanders had fought an engagement with the soldiers from the fort and the sailors from the Baltimore and Serpent sloops in which the latter succeeded in landing and destroying the ferry-house and several small villages on the Ardgower side. On this, the Camerons ensconced themselves at Korpach, where Loch Linne bends to its junction with Loch Eel, and there beat off an armed flotilla of boats, with such success that the Baltimore was ordered thither to open fire and cover a landing. But the Highlanders' position was so good that the bombardment made no impression, and Captain Howe had to withdraw baffled. Ewan was with these adventurers at Korpach, enjoying himself and finding in conflict an anodyne for his thoughts. It made the blood run pleasantly and enabled him to forget Alison for an hour or so. But the ordinary business of the siege was less stimulating, since he had nothing to do with the artillery under Stapleton and Grant and their Franco-Irish gunners, and the only chance of hand-to-hand -hand fighting lay in repelling the constant raids of the garrison and trying to protect the unfortunate dwellers in the countryside who suffered by them. He seemed to himself to live in a series of disconnected scenes, sometimes here in Lochaber, where Ben Nevis, thickly capped with snow, looked down impartially on assailants and defenders alike, sometimes back in Inverness, going through every moment of those short two days with Alison. But no one who did not observe him constantly and closely could have guessed this. Lochiel, who knew him well and did observe him closely, gave him as much to do as possible. But it was certainly not Lochiel who enjoined on him the feat which brought his share in the siege to an abrupt end. It was a fine morning in the latter half of March, blown through with a gusty wind. Brigadier Stapleton, having got some mortars into position on one of the little eminences about half a mile from the fort, had started to shell it from that point, and the fort was replying. Since its fire was directed towards destroying the hostile batteries, there was no great danger from it to those not serving the guns, and the Highlanders had no doubt grown a little careless, which might account for the fact that near the crest of another hillock, about a quarter of a mile away from Stapleton's mortars, and the same distance as they from Fort William, Lochiel and Keppoch were standing unconcernedly in the midst of a little group of Camerons and Macdonalds. Below them, on the slope looking towards the fort, a half-ruined stone wall hinted at a bygone attempt at cultivation or enclosure. 
the two chiefs were interested in some rather suspicious activities on board the Baltimore sloop, visible at anchor in the lock beyond the counterscarp and bastions of the fort. "'I vow it seems like another raid preparing,' said Alexander MacDonald. "'Do you look, look ill. He passed the camera in his spyglass. Ewan, who was sitting comfortably in the heather at a few yards' distance nearer the battery, rested his elbows on his knees and shaded his eyes the better to see also, his brain at these words busy with a vision of a possibly gratified desire for what he considered real fighting. Suddenly, as it were with half an eye, he became aware of something unusual in the fort, where, a mere eight hundred yards away, movements were perfectly visible. Surely the defenders had altered the position of one of their six-pounders. Could they be intending? Lochiel, standing there with the glass to his eye, looking at the sloop, was fully exposed to their view. In a second, Ewan was on his feet, shouting a warning, but as he sprang came the flash and the roar. "'God!' he cried, in agony, and with another bound was up on the crest of the hillock, his arms wide. Could one man's body suffice? There was a crash as the shot pitched into the ruined wall on the slope below, breaking and scattering the big rough stones in all directions. Ewan never saw what struck him, but at the moment of impact— which seemed to drive his soul from his body. He had just time to think. Oh, it is for him. Alison, forgive me. And then he went into darkness. When he came out of it again, he found himself lying on the farther slope, in the midst of a group of people, with his head on someone's arm, and hands unfastening his coat. A voice said, No, the head wound is only slight. Tis here on the breast that the large stone must have struck him. Ewan tried to get his own voice. It was difficult, and the world heaved. Is, is Lochiel safe? Archibald Cameron, kneeling beside him, looked up for a second. He's holding you at this moment, dear lad. No, lie still. He went on with his examination. But Ewan disobediently turned his swimming head a little, and saw that he was indeed in Lochiel's hold, so Lochiel must be unharmed. Why then had he his other hand over his eyes? Puzzled but content, he shut his own again. When next he thought much about his surroundings, he was lying in the same place, wrapped in a plaid, with Lachlan squatting near, gazing at him with anguished eyes. Over the level top of Ben Nevis, clouds, as white as the snow which crowned it, were hurrying against the blue. It came back to Ewan that he had heard Archie say that he was greatly bruised, but that no bones seemed broken, and no internal injury, he hoped, inflicted. So, after speaking a word or two of reassurance to his foster brother, he relapsed into a state of happy content, with pain every time he drew a breath and a violent headache. But Lochiel was safe. Presently he felt his hand taken, and there was Lochiel himself kneeling by him, and Lachlan on the other side, removing himself respectfully to a distance. Ewan, Ewan, said the well-beloved voice, with trouble in it. You should not have done it. Ewan gave him a radiant smile. He felt neither penitence nor any need for it. I saw what was going to happen, he observed. I do not think that anything would have reached me. No one was struck but you, who deliberately threw yourself in the way of the fragments, and one of Kepok's gillies, slightly. If you had been killed on my behalf... Lochiel left the sentence unfinished and glanced down at the cuff of his coat. There was a stain on it. Ewan's eyes had followed his. Do not say that you were hurt, after all, 
he exclaimed in a tone of horror. "'It is your own blood, Ewan. Your head was not much cut,' Archie says. "'But, oh, my child, if I'd had your death too at my door, when there's so much that I must answer for.' And the young man saw that his chief was moved, more deeply moved than he had ever seen him. But, being still stupid from the blow on the head, he thought, "'Why does he say that? Whose death is at his door?' and he lay looking with a mixture of affection and perplexity at the kinsman who was still as much his pattern of all that was noble, wise, and generous, as when he himself had been a boy under his tutelage. Then the fort fired one of its twelve-pounders at the battery, and through the din Lochiel told him that a litter had been sent for to take him to Glen Nevis' house, where he should see him again later. Soon after, therefore, Four of his men carried Ewan to that house of Alexander Cameron's at the opening of the glen, which Lochiel and Keppoch had made their headquarters, and he heard the voice of the Nevis telling of the heights from which it had descended, and a little later, when that had faded from his hearing, a less agreeable one, lowland and educated, saying how disgraceful it was that a peaceful writer could not go a mile from Maryborough to visit a client without being seized by cattle thieves, and that, indeed, the said thieves could do no less than send him back under escort and safe conduct. And here the indignant speaker's gaze must have fallen upon the litter with its burden, for his next remark was, What have we here? Another of you killed. I'm rejoiced to see it. Ewan felt constrained to deny this imputation. I'm not in the least killed, he rejoined with annoyance, opening his eyes to find himself almost at the door of Glenevis' house, and to see, in the midst of a group of rather shamefaced Highlanders, Mr. Chalmers, the Whig notary of Maryborough, whom he knew and who knew him. The lawyer gave an exclamation. "'Oh, good sakes! "'Tis Mr. Ewan Cameron of Ardroy. "'I'm unco sorry to see you in this condition, "'and in such company, Ardroy.' "'Why, what other company do you suppose I should be in?' asked Ewan, and shut his eyes again and heard no more of Mr. Chalmers and his grievances. But... The chance meeting was to mean a great deal to him afterwards. What meant more to him at the moment, however, was that Dr. Cameron kept him in bed longer than he had anticipated, and he had not been on his legs again for more than a day or two when the siege of Fort William was suddenly abandoned. The defenders were too resolute, the besiegers unfortunate, and their artillery not sufficiently powerful, and, in the night of the 3rd of April, after spiking their remaining cannon, the attacking force withdrew and, since they were in their own land of Lochaber, and it was seed-time or past it, Lochiel and Keppoch gave permission to their men to go home for a few days. So Ewan and his little force returned to Ardroy, and he saw Loch Naholere again, and caused Neil to row him upon it, for it was too cold for a swim, in the middle of which voyage he was struck by a sudden suspicion, and, landing on the islet, examined it for traces of the heron. There were none, and the nest, up at the top of the tallest pine-tree, must long have been uninhabited, for the winds had blown it nearly all away. Shortly afterwards, Lachlan had a singularly unpleasant interview with his chieftain, in which, upbraided with the most direct disobedience, he replied that his concern for the being he loved best on earth was even stronger than his wish to obey him, after which, in a dramatic but perfectly sincere manner, he drew his dirk and said that rather than Machi Kelein should look at him with such anger, he would plunge it into his own heart. In the end, Ewan was constrained to forgive him, after pointing out how little his disobedience had availed. 
there were more herons than one in Lochaber, and other officers than Captain Wyndham in King George's army, he might have added. His twice-held prisoner had indeed passed from his thoughts these many weeks. The question of the slaughtered heron necessarily brought him back there for a moment, but without any permanence. Ewan did not anticipate another meeting with him, for, were Angus's prophecy going to be fulfilled to the letter, they would surely have encountered each other in the confusion of Falkirk fight, with the second battalion of the royal's hat, until it fled, faced the Camerons across the ravine. No, that two meetings should come to pass out of the five predicted was quite a reasonable achievement for the old Tyshire. And then, one afternoon, when he was absorbed in thoughts of Alison, with all the final suddenness of the expected, came a panting messenger from Achnakeri, with a scrawl in Lochiel's writing. Gather your men and march at once. Cumberland is moving. God send we reach Inverness in time. A bad dream is sometimes only a dream to the sleeper. He may know it to be such, and tell himself so. But this, though it held some of the elements of nightmare, was no dream. It was reality, this tramping of a tired and half-starved army through the night, in a hopeless attempt to surprise the Duke of Cumberland's camp. Hopeless, because it was plain that they would never get to Nairn before daylight now. Aide-de-camp after aide-de-camp, officer after officer, had come riding past to the head of the column of Highlanders and Athol men to urge Lord George Murray to halt, for the rear could not keep up. And yet, thought Ewan rather scornfully, they had not just marched more than fifty miles over mountainous country in two days, as most of Clan Cameron had. It was by this feat of endurance and speed that Lochiel and his men had reached Inverness the previous evening, to learn, to their dismay, that Cumberland had been allowed to cross the Spey unopposed. Despite fatigue, they had made but a brief halt in the town and had proceeded to Culloden House, whither the prince had gone earlier in the day. A warm welcome had been theirs, for he was becoming alarmed at their non-appearance, the more so that by no means all his scattered forces were yet returned from the various enterprises on which they had been dispatched. Cromarty, the MacGregors, and the MacKinnons were still north of the Moray Firth, no one knew where, and Keppoch had not yet appeared, nor the Frasers, nor Clooney Macpherson and his men. Today, since early morning, the whole army had been drawn up on the chosen ground of Dramossy Moor, in the belief that Cumberland would advance that day, and attempt to reach Inverness. But the hours went by and the enemy did not appear, and then the cravings of hunger began to be felt, for all the food which had passed any man's lips that day was a single biscuit served out at noon. And at last it was clear that, the 15th of April being his birthday, Cumberland was remaining at Nairn to allow his troops fitly to celebrate it. The prince's hungry forces therefore withdrew from the moor again to the vicinity of Duncan Forbes's mansion. It was known that Lord George Murray had not liked the ground chosen for their stand, and Brigadier Stapleton and Colonel Kerr of Graydon, the ablest staff officer the prince possessed, had crossed the water of Nairn that morning to seek for a better. They reported that the boggy, hilly ground there was much more suitable than the open moor for receiving the Hanoverian attack since it was almost impossible for cavalry and artillery, and the foot might perhaps be tempted into some pass where they could be fallen upon and annihilated. On the other hand, it was urged that, if the Highlanders withdrew over the stream into the hills, 
Cumberland would almost certainly slip by them to Inverness, seize the baggage and stores, and starve them out. The matter was still unsettled when, at an informal council of officers in the afternoon, someone, Ewan was not clear who, had proposed to surprise the Hanoverian camp by a night attack. Most of the soldiers there, it was thought, would be more or less drunk after the festivities of the birthday. Lord George Murray and the Prince were both found to be in favour of the idea. Moreover, owing to the scandalous neglect of the commissariat shown by Hay of Resselrig, who had succeeded Murray of Broughton as secretary, there was not a crumb of food for the men next day. Objections to the plan there were indeed. The distance, a good ten miles, the danger of a spy's carrying the news to the English camp, the absence of so many contingents. But the arrival of Keppoch with two hundred MacDonalds when the meeting was in progress clinched the matter, and the night attack was resolved upon. The decision had purposely been kept from the men themselves, and it was with remorseful knowledge of the futility of their preparations that Ewan had watched his own little company choosing the driest spots on the heathery hillside for a night's repose, making a fire and rolling themselves supperless in their plaids to seek in sleep a palliative for the gnawing hunger which possessed them. Perhaps it would have been better if the rank and file had been told what was afoot, for, by the time planned for the start, seven o'clock, it was found that hundreds of them had stolen off in search of food. And to the mounted officers sent out in the utmost haste to beat them up and bring them back, no easy task. Many had replied that the officers might shoot them if they pleased, but go back they would not until they had had meat. The prince was urged to give up the plan, but he refused, and as those who had remained were assembled, the word had been given to march off. It was an excellent night for a surprise, dark and misty, but it was also very favourable for tired and hungry men to drop unobserved out of the ranks, and many of them did so. Ewan was as tired and hungry as anyone else, but he shut his mouth and plodded on, like an automaton, at the head of his company. Lochiel was in front, and where Lochiel went he followed, as a matter of course. And close on his heels came Neil and Lochlan, of the same mind regarding him. Although Lord George had never consented actually to stop, he had been obliged to march slower and slower, in consequence of the messages from the rear. But now at last there came a halt, and a prolonged one. The Duke of Perth rode past, and presently Hay of Resselwick. Discussion was evidently going forward in the van. And meanwhile the unwished-for light was growing in the east, not yet daybreak, but its harbinger. Faces began to be distinct and haggard faces they were. And here came back one of the Mackintosh guides, the same who, not long before, had brought the order to attack with a sword only. Before he spoke to him, Ewan guessed what orders he brought now. They were to retrace their steps. The surprise was being abandoned. Too much time had been lost on the way, and to attack in daylight would be madness. All the nightmare effort had been for nothing or worse than nothing. Between five and six of that cold, grey morning, Ewan found himself once more before the gates of Culloden House. Men were dropping where they stood. Some, he knew, were lying worn out along the roadside. He was in no better case himself, in some ways, indeed in a worse, for it was not three weeks since he had left his bed 
after his experience at Fort William. But, in anger and desperation, he dispatched Neil and Lachlan, who still seemed capable of movement, to Inverness with orders to get food for their comrades if they had to steal it. It was all he could do, and when he got inside the house he sat down exhausted in the hall, and fell asleep with his head on a table. He was hardly conscious of the stir a little later, when the prince arrived, tired, dispirited, and sore from the complaints which he could not avoid hearing. But from scraps of talk about him, for the place was full of officers in the same plight as himself, Ewan's weary brain did receive the welcome impression that they would at least have some hours to rest and recuperate, and later please heaven to get some food, for Cumberland was evidently not going to attack today. He was dreaming that he was at home and sitting down to a good meal, when he felt someone shaking him and, raising his head, saw one of his own cousins from Appen, Ian Stewart. "'What is it?' he asked stupidly. "'A straggler has just come in with news that some troops are advancing from Nairn. He did not know whether it was the main body or only skirmishers.' Ewan dragged himself to his feet. All round the hall others were doing the same, but some would require more to rouse them than a mere rumour. It was broad daylight, a clock near, marked nine o'clock. It cannot be the main body, the attack, he said incredulously. There was no sign of general movement at Nairn. The campfires were burning. We could see them four miles away. However, the truth can soon be discovered. The weary-faced Appen lad shrugged his shoulders. It will not be very easy to make sure, he said. Fitz James's horse is all dispersed after fugitives and food. I tell you, Ardroy, I do not much care which it is. If only I could get an hour's sleep. I must find Lochiel, said Ewan. He had no idea where he was, a sufficient comment on his own state, but was told that he was upstairs with the prince, who, on coming in, had thrown himself just as he was upon his bed. Half dizzy with sleep and hunger, Ewan went up the wide staircase, hearing everywhere voices discussing the report, and arguing and wondering what was to be done, and declaring that the speakers disbelieved the news, because they desired to disbelieve it. When he reached the landing, the door of the prince's bedchamber opened, and Lord George Murray and Kerr of Graydon came out together, the latter looking very grim, Lord George plainly in a rage. They went down the stairs to the encumbered hall, Lord George calling for his aide-de-camp. The door, meanwhile, had been left ajar. Loud voices came through it, and Ewan had a glimpse of the prince, sitting on the edge of his bed, still booted, with Sir Thomas Sheridan, his old tutor, beside him. He was speaking, not to him, but to someone invisible. I tell you, his voice came sharply, edged with fatigue and obstinacy. I tell you the English will be seized with panic when they come to close quarters. They cannot face my Highlanders in the charge. It will be again, as it was at Gladsmere, and... Then the door shut behind Lochiel, coming slowly out. He did not see the young man waiting for him, and on his tired, unguarded face Ewan could read the most profound discouragement. As he crossed the landing, Ewan took a couple of strides after him, laying hold of his plaid, and the chief stopped. Is it true, Donald? I suppose so, answered Lochiel quietly. At any rate, we must take up our positions at once. Over the water of Nairn, then, I hope. 
No. The prince is immovable on that point. We are to take our stand on our old positions of yesterday, on the moor. When you and Lord George disapprove, it's the doing, no doubt, of the same men who were for it yesterday, those who have nothing to lose, the French and Irish officers. Lochiel glanced over his shoulder. Don't speak so loud, Ewan. But you are right. May God forgive them. May God reward them, said Ewan savagely. We are to march our companies back to the moor, then. Yes, and we and Athol are to be on the right wing today. Ewan was surprised, the MacDonalds always claiming and being conceded this privilege. But he did not seek the reason for the change, and followed his chief in silence down the stairs. The confusion in the hall had increased, and yet some officers were still lying on the floor without stirring, so spent were they. Find me Dungallon and Torcastle, said Lochiel. By the way, have you had anything to eat, Ewan, since noon yesterday? Have you, which is more to the point, asked Ewan. Lochiel smiled and shook his head. But, fortunately, a little bread and whiskey was discovered for the prince. Ewan found Ludovic Cameron of Torcastle, the chief's uncle, and Cameron of Dungallon, major of the regiment, and himself went out in a shower of sleet to rouse his men, having in several cases to pull them up from the ground. He had got them into some kind of stupefied order when he saw Lochiel and Dungallon come by. A body of MacDonalds was collecting near, and as the two Camerons passed, Ewan scarcely realized it then, but he remembered it afterwards. There were muttered words and a black look or two. But he himself was thinking bitterly. I wonder are we all fey? We had the advantage of a good natural barrier, the spay, and we let Cumberland cross it like walking over a burn. Now, we might put the nairn water between him and us, and we will not. An insistent question suddenly leapt up in his heart. He looked round, and by good fortune, Lucio came by again, alone. Ewan intercepted and stopped him. For God's sake, one moment— he drew his chief a little apart towards the high wall which separated the house from the parks. If the day should go against us, Lochiel, if we have all to take to the heather. Yes, said his cousin gravely, not repudiating the possibility. Where will you make for? Give us a rendezvous. Give me one, at all events. Why, my dear boy, I shall make for Achnacary. But that is just where you would be sought for by the elector's troops. Yet I must be where the clan can find me, said the chief. Loch Arkig is the best rallying point. Tis not easy neither to come at it suddenly in force, because there is always the Lochy to ford. And if I were strictly sought for in person, there are plenty of skulking places round Achnacary, as you know. But none beyond the wit of man to discover Donald, and most of them known to too many. Of the clan, perhaps, yes, but you do not imagine, surely, that any of them would be betrayed by a Cameron. Moreover, Archie came on a new one the other day, when we were there. He showed it to me. Truly, I do not think the wit of man could find that unaided, and no one knows of it but he and I. So set your mind at rest, dear lad. He took a step or two away. I'll tell you too, Ewan. The young man's face, which had become a little wistful, lit up. Oh, Donald. Listen, said Lucille, dropping his voice, and coming closer to the wall. Halfway up the southern slope of Bein Vrach, 
about a hundred paces to the right of the little waterfall. And Ewan, listening eagerly, heard of an overhanging birch tree whose old roots grasped like hinges an apparently immovable block of stone, which could be moved if one knew just where to push it, and of a cave, long disused, which Dr. Cameron had found behind it, a place whose existence could never be suspected, and there, if hard-pressed. Yes, surely there you would be safe, said Ewan with satisfaction, and that is a thousand times better than any of the old places. I thank you for telling me. I shall not forget. Whom should I tell if not you, my dear Ewan, said his chief, laying his hand for a moment on his shoulder. You have always been to me. More he did not say, for Dungallon was at his elbow, urgently summoning him. But perhaps also he could not. Ewan pulled his bonnet lower on his brows, and, bending his head against the sleety blast, set his face with the rest towards the fatal stretch of moorland, the last earthly landscape that many a man there would ever see. But over that possibility he was not troubling himself. He was wondering whether it were possible to be much hungrier, and what his foster brothers would do when they returned and found him gone into battle without them. And, like a litany, he repeated to himself, to be sure that he remembered them aright, the directions MacGoldu had given him. Halfway up the southern slope of Beinvrach, about a hundred paces to the right of the waterfall. Just as they were all taking up their positions, a gleam of sun shot through the heavy, hurrying clouds, and fell bright upon the moving tartans, Stuart and Cameron, Fraser, Mackintosh, MacLean and MacDonald, lighting to the distant hills of Ross across the Firth, whence Cromarty came not, and the high ground over the Nairn water on the other hand, where Clooney Macpherson was hurrying towards them with his clan, to arrive too late. Then the gleam went out, and the wind howled anew in the faces of those who should spend themselves to death unavailingly, and those who should hold back for a grudge. It fluttered plaid, and tugged at eagle's feather, and whipped about him the cloak of the young man for whom the flower of the north stood here to be slain, and faint upon it, too, came now and then the kettle-drums of Cumberland's advance. End of section 13